You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you're new to River, I just want to give you a shout out. Thanks for coming on a wet, snowy day. The weather's not sure exactly what it wants to do. What is it, a, a degree colder? I think we'd have snow, a degree much worse, a degree warmer. Everything would be great. But uh, you're here, so we're going to worship and serve God. And, uh, and it's going to be a great morning. So we just started a series in First Thessalonians. And uh, we're really the theme of Thessalonians and, and what we're talking about is standing firm. And in order for us to, to, to stand firm in our life and our spiritual life, and that's what Paul is really encouraging the, the church at, uh, there, the Thessalonians, to do, we have to have something firm on which to stand first. We've, uh, we've talked to an architect recently. I think most of you guys probably know that we're hoping to put a lobby on uh, this summer uh, sometime. And we actually have already talked with the town. And don't tell the town this, but they're being really nice to us. It's really great. And so, you know, it's nice when they're like, oh, yeah, don't worry about getting plans to tell us what it's going to look like ahead of time. Just submit some, you know, the, the actual drawings. And I'm kind of shocked, quite frankly. So we're already talking to an architect and uh, about those things. But uh, it's going to be pretty cool. We're just going to kind of fill in that, you know, the little L area that where you walk in, kind of a little courtyard. We're just going to kind of expand out a little bit. And it's going to be able, we think, to open up all the way through. We'll even take out a door with a wall. But as we, we, as we design that, the architect is gonna, who designs that, I know because of code that they're going to design the footers, the concrete that they put down deep, they're going to go down four feet into the ground because the frost line, you know, goes in and most buildings that are trying to build to last before they put the walls up, they've got to make sure that there's a firm, sure footing, a firm foundation on which to build. Well, Paul is, is helping us to today through, as we look at what he's telling the Thessalonians, to, to understand what the firm footing is, the foundation for our life. You see, the, the church there of the Thessalonians, they were struggling. They, they were under a lot of persecution. In fact, they, they trusted Christ, and, and the church was born in the middle of people in their community around them really not being too excited about them. In fact, there was a, a kind of a riot, a mob that had happened in the town. And uh, so Paul says, you guys are under a lot of pressure. And the, the Word of God came to them and did some amazing things. In fact, we're going to unpack that today. But along the way, they had some confusion. They were really expecting like Jesus to come. They, in their mind, never expected the internet to ever be invented. They never expected the automobile to be invented. They never expected people to be able to create a plane that flies through the sky or anyone to land on the moon. They really thought Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime, and that was going to be it. Like, Jesus has come. He saved us. This is awesome. Fast forward, we're going to heaven. And so time has passed along a little bit, and they've lost some of their uh, church members who have passed away. And so they're struggling, like, hey, what happens to those people? Jesus hasn't come. Did they miss out? Do they not get to go to heaven? What, have, have we missed out? What is exactly going to go on? So Paul is writing to them to say, folks, everything is good. Stand firm. Be firm in that. And, and specifically this morning, what he's really telling us is that we especially need to be firm in our life with our salvation. That if we're going to live a life that, that, that not only honors God, but uh, accomplishes you know, a, a, a fullness, if you will, live life to the most, but is able to endure the persecution and able to handle, handle the difficulties and confusions and challenges of life, the firm foundation that we need to stand upon is that we know that we know 
that we have a relationship with God in heaven, that he has saved us and he loved us. So with that, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at verses 4 through 10 this morning. 4 through 10. Read with me, if you would. 1 Thessalonians, verse 4. The Bible says this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And here's how we know this. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, talking about the Lord Jesus, for you received the word in much affliction. That's that persecution but it was with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, has rung out, if you will, in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want you to pray with me. Father, I am grateful for these words this morning. I'm grateful for their clarity and profoundness. There are so many things in this passage that encourage us and explain to us what salvation really is and how we experience it and how it changes our life. And Father, I pray that you would help us to, as it were, pour concrete down deep, uh, that we might be able to stand firm against the tides of the world around us, against the challenges that surface, against even the own things that, the things that begin to weigh in on our heart and our mind. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus who came and who died for us and rose again. We love him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to hear the heart this morning of Paul as Paul and Silas and Timothy went to that early church and they, they were there sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had just come from Philippi that I had talked earlier and the, the people in Philippi kind of ran them out of town. They were thrown in jail and there was tremendous controversy. I do want to say too often Christians just we feel like we have the right to be jerks to people and we tell them the word of God. You know, it's one thing to believe the word of God and be firm and secure in that. But you don't need to be mean or jerk or ugly or rude about it. You don't need to be bashful or shy or like, you know, I don't know. You don't need to be timid, but we don't need to be obnoxious and, and as a jerk about it. And so Paul was transparent and clear as he shared the gospel and many people trusted Christ. But there was kind of a, a, a backlash to it as the enemy is always at work and they were thrown in jail. And now he's in Thessalonica and he's sharing the gospel again because that was the heart and the passion and the calling to which God had, had called him. And people had received that word and a mob began to form. And they began realizing, like, okay, let's see. Paul goes to town. He shares the gospel. Some people get saved, and they get excited, and the, the others around them don't like it. 
and they start getting irritated. Mobs form, get thrown in jail. So we need to break this cycle. So the locals who trusted Christ said, Paul, we love you, leave. <laughs> Just get out of here and leave. We got this. We're going to continue. We're going to serve God. We got this. You move on to the next one. I almost think God was just, in some ways, not making it so comfortable that, so that Paul wouldn't stay there. You know, if it was great and, you know, if the weather was nice, not like today, and, you know, everything was wonderful. I mean, Thessalonica is a, is a coastal town. I mean, he, he was in Greece, right? You know, he kind of suffered for Jesus, wink, 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 you know, at the beach and all of that. So God kind of, I think, just had a way of turning the heat up on Paul and moving him so that that gospel will be spread to other places. So he's writing back now, and he has concerns. Because in his mind, he's like, I planted the seeds in that ground. Did it grow? How are the people? Are they really following God? Do they have changed lives? Or did they just kind of pray a prayer, like a little sinner's prayer, and then just the rest of their life living like the devil and doing their own thing? So Paul is kind of checking back in. Hear the heart of a man who says, I, I actually don't need to check in and see how you're doing because I've heard from all these people around how incredible your faith really is. And he's actually encouraging them in that. So Paul, the three or four things I want you to recognize this morning. Paul is sharing with us, first off, this, this part of this putting down this foundation that we need to stand firm on. He's giving them an encouragement he wants them to, to be truly encouraged. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, for we know, we know that we know that we know that we're assured of. That's what this means. He says, we know brothers who are loved by God. He says, guys, this is almost like a little side thing. This isn't the main thing that he's talking about, but he wants to make sure they don't miss it. He says, guys, we know you, you are the ones who are loved by God. He's encouraging them that, that the God of heaven, the God of this universe right now has loved you in the past and he's loving you right now and he's going to love you in the future. You are, you are loved. You see, God this morning wants to encourage our hearts that, that when we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior and he's forgiven us of our sins, that we live every moment of every day within the love of God Almighty in heaven. When we lay our head on the pillow at night, we're loved. He wanted that church to say, guys, I don't know what's going on in each of your lives right now. I don't know what lawsuits you've got pressing in on you. I don't know if you're coming out of jail or not. I don't know what your, your spouse is saying to you, what your kids are telling you. I, I have no clue what's going on in your world, but I want you to get this. Your identity in this world is in the reality that the God of the universe loves you. He doesn't just love you collectively. He loves you personally. We tend to only really love the things or the people that we know, right? If we don't really know something well, we don't, we don't love them. I've never swung once at a golf ball. I can tell you I don't love the game of golf. Some of you would probably say, Sean, stay away from it. It is a nasty game that is hard to master. And I'd be like, okay, I got it. Maybe I really would love the game of golf, but I've never played it. I will probably never play it. If we're doing the, what do you call it, when like there's a group of four and you play the best ball, I'll always be the worst ball. Like I could probably play that, right? But I could never go out and play with you guys. So I want you to, 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 to put this in mind. When the God of the universe is saying, I love you, 
This is not a distant, oh, I love you guys from afar. I love you personally, up close, real, consciously, you, you alone directly in the universe. My love is for you. It's for you. It's as if his love is not for anybody else. I'm not saying that God doesn't love other people, but I'm saying in that moment, we have all of the love of the universe of the God of heaven toward us. It's not divided. It's not split. It's not separated. It's not, you know, it's not like God has just this much love and he proportions a little bit to everybody. All of his love comes to us. So guys, that is something that you and I need to be reminded of regularly as an encouragement, part of that foundation of our life. And as Paul is writing to them, he's like, hey guys, get this. You are loved by God. Second big encouragement that he reminds them of here is not only are you loved by God, but he said, you are chosen by God. For we know brothers loved by God, in verse 4, that he has chosen you. Now I want you to notice the next word of the next verse, because, and then from verse 5 all the way to the rest of chapter 1, which is down in verse 10, Paul is giving all of the evidences of why he's convinced that he knows that God has chosen them. That he's loved them and he's chosen them. Now as we hit this word chosen, for some of you, you will, be, you will like this word. Some of you will be confused by this word, and some of you will not like this word. This is one of those controversial words in the Christian world so that, that, that people, seminary students, love to debate. They will get all hot and bothered and just kind of go, you know, eyes bulging and popping and all of that. And to be perfectly honest, my take is, is if somebody is that wrapped up into their belief, they actually are very insecure in their belief. I'm very secure. If I run into a guy who's an absolute atheist, am I, do I come uncorked and unglued because of the things he says? No. I know what I believe, and I know what the God of heaven says is true. I don't have to get mad and eyes popping and bulging. My identity's not wrapped up in what he thinks. My identity's wrapped up in what God thinks toward me, right? So, so uh, I like what one person has said about this idea that God has chosen us, that it's the kind of thing that if you try to understand it, you will lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you will lose your soul. And there's some truth in here. There's a lot of theologians that, that, that split on this, and they almost form their whole theological system, their whole spiritual system around this, this kind of one concept. And then there's others that can't stand the concept, and they'll spend their life and their system trying to explain it away and, and land it over here. And where I am is not trying to meet in the middle. I want us to land where the God's word lands. And where God speaks and lands, I want to land clearly. I don't want to land to the left of that. I don't want to land to the right of it. Whenever I shoot my bow and archery, I always draw back. And there's a, there's a target in front of me. I'm not just aiming to say, well, I hope I get on that board somewhere. I'm aiming for the very precise, exact center. If I'm aiming, I want to aim at a particular spot, and I'm trying to see how close I can get to that. I'm not trying to just say, well, that's good enough on the board. Here's the thing. When we think about really what should the center of our beliefs be, the center of our salvation be, this word is on the board, but it's not the center of that board. 
Paul says elsewhere, writing to people, he said, look, when I came and was among you, I determined to know only one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to know that. That's the center. Now, on that target are other things, if you will. But Paul says, that's the bullseye that I'm aiming for. Sometimes churches get focused on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is important, obviously. It's the third person of God and our salvation. He's involved in that. But if we try to make the Holy Spirit the center, we're off. We're high right, if you will, or whatever. Uh, and so we need to keep this in perspective and in context in terms of our salvation. So having said that, we also need to make sure that we don't try to water away dilute it, if you will, and make it what it's not. Neither do we need to put it on steroids and amp it up and pump it up, if you will. Some churches, send it, they almost tend to talk about this all the time and everything runs through that grid. And to be perfectly honest with you, it's an important teaching in Scripture, but it's not on every single page. We just ran into it now, you know, and when the Bible runs into something, that's when we talk about it. When it doesn't, I don't. Part of the problem that, that churches and Christians can run into even heresy can begin is not just by saying things that are wrong, but by overemphasizing some things and de-emphasizing and underemphasizing other things. You can get into a mess if you start emphasizing the deity of Christ to where you lose the humanity of Jesus. You can get into a problem if you focus on one person of the Trinity to the exclusion of the others along the way. So when God is writing this and, he, and through Paul inspiring it, he says, look, I want you to know specifically that you are chosen of God. Let's don't take any teeth out of that. Let's don't water that down. Paul is saying, God reached down in heaven and he chose you to know you. He's not choosing them as people instead of angels. Or he would have talked about angels. He's not saying he chose you as a group of people instead of just the Jewish nation. He's not. In fact, when we read the rest of chapter 1, he's saying, hey, God chose you, and here's how I know he chose you. He's like, look, you trusted the word of God that came to you, the gospel, the Holy Spirit bore witness in your life. You turned from idols. You received that. Look at the changes that brought in your life. He's saying, I know that God reached down and chose you because look at all of this stuff in your life. The converse of that is true. I know that God apparently hadn't chosen some others. They haven't received the word of God in their life. Think about it this way. Here's what people tend to get a little concerned about on either side. And I, I may end up making several of you mad at me, a bunch of you on either sides. And I don't know. I'm just going to share with you what I, the best I know what the Bible says. But I went, I went fishing yesterday, ice fishing, okay? Two or three of us went ice fishing. And uh, I'll just say this. We pulled a lot of fish up from the ice. But none of the ones were ones that we actually caught from, from the, the water. We were fishing with bait fish, little fish, okay? So I actually fish two ways. When you go ice fishing and you have little minnows that you're fishing with, you have a little bucket there and you have a little net and you dip your net down in the water. Technically, that's fishing, right? Go on with me, right? I'm fishing the, out of the boat. And I tell you, I had phenomenal success. It was almost 100% of the time when I stuck that net down in there, I at least came up with one. In fact, sometimes I was so good, I came up with four or five in one shot. It was amazing. And then you would put those little bait fish on a hook, and you put that hook down in the, in the hole, and then you really go fishing and hoping uh, the bigger fish, right, because big fish eat little fish, and you hope you come up with a big fish. The problem was is all day long I didn't catch any other fish. 
So Sean, you spent, well, I didn't stay all day. We stayed maybe three or four hours. You spent four hours sitting on ice, uh, cold, and doing nothing but just sitting there and watching and thinking, yep, that's what we did, and we called it fun. So um, you can decide. So here's the thing. Here's where people, we get all excited about this. Some people will feel like, well, Sean, if this whole thing about who is saved and not saved, and can everybody be saved, and, and if I'm saved, does that mean that person's not chosen, and I'm all of that? They, they, and they begin thinking that, well, fishing for God, saving people, is like dipping his little net down into a bucket. But, you know, I went in, and I was scooping up. Sometimes I was after one fish. I'm like, oh, that's a big bait. I want to get that one because I want a bigger fish, right? So I would choose one, and I would intentionally reach. Even if I had a little net, I picked one out of the net and said, I want that one. Thank you very much. I don't want the other ones. My decision, my choice. And then other people feel like salvation, like God offering it, is more like regular fishing. I have never once yet caught a fish, whether it's summertime or winter, hey, I see that fish over there or down there. That's the one I want. I just throw my bait out there, and I'm just hoping anything will come get it. Like, right? You know, come one, come all, Moby Dick, you know, any of you. I'll be glad to, to wheel, you know, reel you right in. Here's the thing. We get all upset trying to figure all this out. Like, well, if God chooses us, then that means what happens to the rest of the fish in the world that don't get chosen, and is God not fair, and is God bad and mean and evil and all of that? And, and, and some people land on one side thinking that, well, God just chooses and everything's done, and others like, well, no, let's, let's not deal with that because we want the gospel to go forward. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, like anybody in the pond, if that gospel bait goes forward, they can see it and grab it and be saved, be caught, if you will. Here's the thing. Both of those things are true according to Scripture. And I cannot explain it. And if you focus on one without the other, you will lose your soul along the way. The Bible teaches us that there is a majestic God in heaven who does save us. And we are responsible, and every person on this universe, in this planet has the opportunity to see the gospel and respond to that. And God wants people to be saved. God's desire is not that anybody would go to hell, be separated from Him forever. God doesn't get joy in that. He wants everyone to be saved. What Paul is talking about this morning, and I want to, here's where I really want to narrow it down for us, is Paul is not trying to solve this bigger question in the universe around us. He's not trying to explain this. Sometimes when theologians get into this and the debates go in seminaries and church families go, I'm for it, I'm against it, and, da, 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 and we get whatever. All the stuff that we get upset about or concerned about or all the questions we ask, in this passage at least, God isn't trying to answer God's assuming, Paul's assuming that they're okay with this word. He doesn't explain it. He just says, hey, remember, God in heaven chose you. And you need to know that, and you need to remember that. And then he spends the next five or six verses, whatever that is, proving to them why that's true. His whole goal is to encourage them to give them a security in their salvation, to give them a firm foundation that they aren't doubting whether or not they know the God of heaven, that they're not doubting whether or not the God of heaven has really saved them, that He's really reached down and loved them and, and changed their life. 
He's trying to give them a firm foundation. So this isn't meant to create a doctrinal theological controversy. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Paul is trying to say, guys, this should give you an incredible confidence in the God of heaven that God has chosen you. And I want you to know that I know, that I see why I have confidence that you are born again. You have a relationship with the God of heaven that God has saved you. And by the way, your salvation is not just based on your decision making and all of whatever's going on in your world, but there's something higher going on here that, that God himself has done an amazing thing in your life. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. When I try to, I try to understand things that are too big for me, I, uh, early on when I was younger, I used to be that seminary student. Well, I can figure this out. And I'm going to you know, get into all the debates. And somewhere along the way, I kind of matured a little bit and grew up. And Deuteronomy 29, 29, I love. It says this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things, the things that are revealed belong to us. It says this. Guys, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that only the God of heaven understands. And he's not revealing to us. But the things that he has clearly revealed, we should accept and hold to and agree with. In other words, we should be careful when our questions and our logic lead us to take those next steps off of Scripture trying to explain things. Paul's not trying to explain, is God fair or not? Paul's not trying to get into, well, wait a minute, how does the gospel available to the world or not and all that? He's not. He's not trying to answer all of that stuff. So bring it in. He's just trying to say, folks, I want you to have confidence in your salvation that the God of the universe has loved you and chosen you and he explains how this whole thing works in our life. It's meant to be a, an incredible encouragement to us. Notice the second thing I want you to, 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 to get here. He gives, us, he gives the early church here in, in the Thessalonians like nine or ten evidences. No, I'm not going to preach your nine or ten point sermon, thankfully. He, but he gives nine or ten reasons why he says, I know that God's done this. You see, this is the part of salvation that's in heaven that we don't have visibility to, we don't understand, that our little brains begin to struggle with, and we should continue to struggle with it, and we should be really careful about the conclusions we come to. I'll give you a simple one. I've heard of, of, of some guys before saying, well, if God really chooses for salvation, then we should never tell anybody about Jesus. Well, that's just dumb. Because Jesus tells us to go and do it. So if your theological conclusion teaches you to disobey God, I think you have a problem. I think the problem's you and your theology and not God. Um, so we have to come back to this. So I want you to notice that the second thing that, I, that, that these evidences, and I've broken them into two groups. One is just the how God saves us. And I really want you to see this because I don't know of another passage that explains this so just simply and clearly, soup to nuts, as, as this one does. Uh, Paul says very simply in this passage, he says, look, here's how the gospel came to you. Show the, show the nice colorful slides that I put together that kind of help us see what's happening here in these verses. There it is. I want you to notice there's, there's four things after he says, I know that God has chosen you in verse 4. And he goes on, he says, look, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also empower the Holy Spirit in full conviction, for you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You know what Paul just said in there? He said, look, God did something in heaven invisibly, 
And he says, hey, you know, guys, we were there. You know what kind of men that we proved as we lived our life among you. We lived these truths out. We weren't snake oil salesmen. We weren't televangelists. We weren't flying-by-night salesmen. You saw our life. You didn't just come and hear us say something that sounded good. You were there. You were watching us even when we weren't paying attention. We weren't, we weren't even at a distance from you. It's not like there were thousands of people. This was close. You know, you saw when something bad happened, whether or not we reacted in anger or jealousy or whatever. You observed. You, you saw us as we really were. In the process of how somebody trusts Jesus, God does something invisibly in heaven, the choosing, but then he sends people to live and model that grace of God in our lives, that, that grace of God. And he, and he puts people in us at work and, and as neighbors and as friends and as fellow students and church family and our own family to, who, who care and live out that grace in their life, people that have been truly saved and born again. And then Paul says, we shared that word. He says that we, that gospel came to you, not only in word. In other words, we shared with you literal words about the gospel, about Jesus Christ coming and dying and rising again. So they had the evidence, the proof of the truth of that in their life, in Paul's life. They had the explanation of that gospel, that salvation. Paul says, we know this is real in you. We shared those words with you. But he also says, he says, the Holy Spirit came in power and in full conviction. So God took those words that Paul shared, the scriptures that he shared, and the, the words and the life that he lived, and the Holy Spirit took those, and he pressed those into the hearts of the people. And he says, we saw that power of God and that conviction. And in the process... You received that gospel. That's what he says in verse, verse 6. He says, You received that, the word in much affliction. They saw the word in action in Paul's life. They heard it in what he spoke. They felt it in the Holy Spirit coming in, into their soul and life. They received that word. And they turned away in verse 9 from idols. They, they repented, if you will. And they put their total life toward God to serve the living and the true God. Go back to the graphic, if you would. Paul is explaining to us how salvation really comes to us from soup to nuts. When we look back, the things that we're aware of for the most part when we trust Christ is pretty much that orange or mustard yellow or whatever that ugly color is on the end there. That's what we know. We, we make a decision. We make a commitment. We hear this message. We receive it. We're like, oh, my goodness, that's right. I am a sinner. I need God. I want Jesus to save me. And the gospel, that's the moment we need. That's what we sing about. We're going to sing about it today, that moment that we were saved. But if we were to look at it like what another guy said, if we were to look at it from the Holy Spirit's perspective, that... We were saved when He came into our life and He made us alive and He kind of turned the lights on and brought that full conviction and those truths down into our soul. 
we often, as a Christian, we will often see that sometime in a person. Not always, but sometimes. Often see it. But sometimes it's hidden. In the, from the perspective of the person sharing the gospel, that person gets saved when we share with them and we've lived with them and then we see them make that commitment. But from Jesus' perspective, that person was saved when he died on the cross for their sins. From God the Father's perspective, which is really when you get into to Scripture, really is what is going on with the whole choosing thing, that happened when He chose them. But all along, there's a sweeping or a process in there that God does what the Father does, what He's said He's going to do. Jesus did what He did on the cross for us. The Holy Spirit is one who brings that salvation, applies it into our soul, we as God's followers are sharing that gospel and living it out and we're bringing that to bear. But ultimately that person is the one who believes and trusts and receives the gospel. And that is how God brings salvation to us. Sean, why did you take the time to explain all this to us? Is this seminary here at River of Life this morning? No, it's really not. There's, some practical, there's a lot of practical applications in this. One, notice what he doesn't say on this list. He doesn't say baptism. He doesn't say confirmation. He doesn't say you went to church all your life. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, look, this is how you really were saved. You see, in every church, there's always people who think they really are born again who are saved, and they're not. They've not experienced this process. They've not experienced... God applying salvation to their soul. They've not really turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They're trusting in other things. Sometimes they even have prayed a sinner's prayer, God, would you save me? But in their mind and heart, were they sincere? Yes. But in their mind and heart, they were really doing it kind of like they did everything else. Just one more good deed to make God happy with them kind of like adding it to the pile. When missionaries share the gospel in other cultures with many gods, they're happy to hear about the God named Jesus. They just add him to the mix. What's one more? We already have 25, so we've got another one. We get another holiday. Woo-hoo, another reason to party. You know, Sometimes in a Christian world, when we don't have those actual idolatries, even when people are praying, they're not they're not always, not everyone is always surrendering their life to Jesus. Admitting their sin before the holy God of heaven and asking him to save them, putting their trust in him. Sometimes they're just praying like a little telemarketer sinner's prayer that's sincere, but they're not really asking God to save them from all of their sin. They're just kind of going through the motions and kind of it just becomes the next like check the box thing like, well, I went to church, I'm a good person, you know, that kind of stuff. And I just know because I was a pastor and I don't know who individuals are, but this this morning should cause us all to re-examine our salvation. Is this what your salvation is like? Did you really surrender your life to Jesus? Turning, putting everything, saying my whole life was idolatry and I want to serve the living and the true God? Was that really a conscious decision? Did you receive that word of the gospel that Jesus alone who died for your sins and rose again the third day 
That's where I put my faith and my trust and assurance. That's a, that's a commitment and decision that, that we make in our heart and soul. Yes, we know later on, looking at Scripture, there's other stuff going on there that we don't understand in that moment that we can look back now and see. But in that moment, so with this set of evidences and even the next one, some of you need to be re-examining your salvation. I know in every church there's always people that are struggling. That there's some people that, well, I don't know if I really am saved or not. Paul's trying to give us something here to give us confidence. To, to, to give us a, an assurance that we don't need to doubt that. He, he roots this whole salvation thing in God. By the way, that's what that's the good encouraging part of that choosing. Like, this is something that God has done. It's, it's not up for debate or question that there's a, a God who's bigger than you, who's done this in your life, and you should have a, a confidence and assurance in that. Paul has been really careful. He wants this early church. He's saying, look, guys, I know I haven't been around for a long time. Your faith's not in me. Your faith is in the God of heaven. And, and, and look how you, you guys are the real deal. You didn't make just some little quick sinner's prayer and just went on your way and living however you want. Like you really leaned into this. This was done right in your life. And in just a moment, we'll see the other things. You'll see all the life change that came as a result of it. And, and Paul wants them to have a, an incredible assurance, a, a, a convictional with inside their soul that they know that they know that the God of heaven has, has saved them and, and chosen them and that they have received him as Lord of their life. So this matters a whole lot in our lives. Let me go on to the, the third thing. I want you to notice the other evidences that Paul says, why he looks back and says, I know that you guys are the real deal. These are the, these are the ones that were the process. It's like, I know this is the real deal. Now this is more like the results. What happened when they really received Jesus and trusted him? What happened as a result of it? He gives us like five or six of those things. Put the next little color graphic up on the screen. He talks about several things in this. He says, look, he says, you guys became imitators. In verse 6, he says, I know this became real because, look, you began to imitate Jesus and us. You aren't the same anymore. You began living like and thinking like and having the attitudes and responses that Jesus our Lord had. Before that, you had anger and vindictiveness and jealousy and all of this stuff. But now, when you receive that word of God in your heart and soul, there's a change. You, and, you imitate and you live like Jesus. And you, you live like what you saw in our lives. And he says, and you, you've experienced that Holy Spirit joy. You receive that word in the joy, he says, of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit that's in the Holy Spirit, he says there, in, in, uh, down in verse 6. The joy that the Holy Spirit produces. You see, when we, you and I receive the Word of God, and we have now a relationship with the God of heaven. Before that, that was cut off. It was broken. We were completely estranged and separated from God. And when, when all of those things that I just shared happen, and we finally get it and receive that good news of Jesus... The Holy Spirit puts a joy in our soul, His joy. 
That's why so many who've been baptized here will talk about you know, anxieties and worries before they trusted Christ. Does, does, does being saved remove all of, all of that automatically? No, no, I don't want to pretend that you know, there's something wrong with you if you're struggling that as you know Jesus. Not at all. But, but God does wipe away a lot of that. And it's going to be a little different for everybody. But they experienced a, a joy that came from the Holy Spirit in their life. In the middle of pressure and persecution and all the junk of life out there, there was an island of oasis in their soul. And collectively as a church, there was joy. And Paul goes on. He doesn't use this term fine brotherhood, but he says, and you be, he does say in, in verse 7, I believe it is, you, you became examples of the other believers all in the region. In other words, the gospel came to you, changed your life, and, and, and in the process, that, that testimony rippled out through the other believers of Jesus. There was, a, there was an, an amazing family network connection that you experienced that, that God invited you into. And, and not only that, but you spread the gospel far and wide. In fact, he says, he says, the word of your faith of God has gone everywhere. That word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, he says. Gone out. You see, when people have really received the gospel, get the picture, it changes us on the inside. We live differently. We experience a joy. Our, our life begins to follow and honor Jesus. He puts us in a family. There's a connections that we have and we live and we encourage one another to grow in faith and the gospel begins to go forward out of us. Why? Because we care about other people. We know the stakes are high. We want them to experience what we have and we can't hold it in and it goes out into our workplace, into our families and, and into other communities and around the world. In fact, in a minute uh, when we do our offering, I'll be bringing some people up here. They're going to go to Guatemala in a week. Our faith is going forward. Their faith is going forward. He said, it's natural. And he says, look, guys, you serve, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Your life now is characterized by serving him, not serving yourself, which you were, but serving God, not serving the idols, but serving God. And you now are waiting for Jesus with an assurance of deliverance that He's provided for you. There's a confidence and a hope that you have in your life. You see, if we want to know whether or not we really know Jesus, when our lives begin to line up and look like that, and we've received that truth of the gospel, the word, then Paul says, yep, no doubt at all, the God of heaven has saved you. And that God has reached down, not only just touched your life, but it wasn't just something that you grabbed a hold of him like a fish on the bait. Reality is, is God's hand reached down and grabbed you, and somehow at that same time God grabbed you, you grabbed God. And all the theological debate is about how those things happen. And to be honest with you, I don't really care. <laughs> to be really honest with you, I care as much as God's words explains it. But I'm just glad to know that as I grabbed for God and trusted and received Him, that God grabbed me and I take confidence and assurance in both because both are very real. And these are what matches our life. Now let's talk about some implications. 
So if those things are real, how should our lives, which would we walk away with this this morning? Paul has taken time to really put down some good footings. The thing about footings in a building is, is you don't know them. That corner of that wall goes down four feet into the ground. You've probably never given it a thought before. Be perfectly honest, I don't know that I ever have, but I'm glad that it does. Because it goes down four feet, that corner is still standing from when the building was built in 1986. And by God's grace, it'll probably still stand, you know, the next 30 years or whatever. But we don't see those things. This is stuff that's down below ground. But our whole life, it gives, it gives foundation, it gives meaning, it dictates our life that's built upon it completely upon these things. If these things are true, it should have, we should have great confidence and assurance of our salvation. If these things are true, we should have incredible gratitude in our heart. You see, at the end of the day, regardless of which of those you prioritize of God choosing in salvation or you receiving salvation and how that all works, regardless, at the end of the day, we have a relationship with God of heaven because he did something. And he, he sent his son Jesus. And as we've talked about today, he chose us and all of this. And if every once in a while in your life, you just don't step back and sit, push back from, I don't care what you're doing, put the phone down, turn the radio off on the, 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 the car radio, turn the TV off, the movie or whatever. And if it just doesn't hit you and wash over your soul that God, you did not have to save me. God, you would have been completely just and right to leave me without any hope, to leave me wallow in my sin, and to leave me absolutely for all of eternity separated from you. God, I was so close to missing your salvation. God, everything I've got, I owe to you, Lord. It should, it should wash over your soul from time to time with such gratitude that God loves us and that he did all of this. Our, our hearts should be touched and moved by that. If it's not, something's wrong somewhere. We either really don't have it or we've so lived separately from it that we've forgotten and out of tune with it. But it should should hit us in a gratitude to God. If these things are true, it should cause a boldness in our living and our sharing the gospel. You know why I'll go fishing next time again, even after getting skunked this time? I'm not psychotic. I have no interest in just sitting on the ice for the fun of it for three or four hours, to be really honest with you. It is a little bit of the nice just to get out and see the mountains, but after all, after a while, I'm like, okay, I got the picture. I'd like to catch something. Uh, I'm convinced I'm going to catch some, that there's some catchable fish out there. I'm convinced. We should take these truths, everything from God's choosing to all of this happening, say, you know what? I'm going to live boldly for Jesus because I don't care if there's 10 fish that I miss and I may have gotten skunked today, but tomorrow's a new day and God may do something in that next person's life. It should give us a confidence and a boldness and a commitment to live out and to share with a hope and a joy and excitement in our soul to know that God has done something. It should give us a hope with our family members. See, I know how this works. The enemy whispers in our ear, and each of you, probably most of us in this room, have family members or people that we really love, that we're convinced that they're so hardened 
that they could never be saved. People have told us, shut up, stop talking about that. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. And you know what this tells us? That God's bigger than all of that. And God's bigger. And we should have a hope. Well, how do I know if they're chosen? I don't know. You never will know. But until the day they die, keep sharing and living boldly your faith and appropriately. Don't be a jerk. Do it spirit-led, but it should give us a confidence in living out our faith. It should cause us to live faithfully. Our life should be lived serving the living and true God. Not just the, when it says the living God, not just that God's alive, but he's the source of life to serve him. It should totally frame our entire life that God, we were over here and God reached down and saved us and it came to us. And now my whole life belongs to him and I serve him. He's the living and the true God, the one that I can depend upon. And we should not be running everywhere else for solutions in our life. I'm so, I, I love technology. I'm at risk of sounding like I don't at times. Probably some of that is a little bit of the frustration with just quite transparently with the age and it changes. I'm like, seriously, I got to learn another thing. You know, we all feel my pain, right? I liked Word the way it was. Why did they have to go and change it, you know? And younger generations are like, because it's better. Like, well, that's debatable. There's some things that are better. But I, can I tell you this? When Google, on my phone, I start putting in, like, timesunion.com, and it auto-spells and puts a space, and I have to go back in and fix that to get to my URL? Like, stop. You're making my life worse. This is not advancement. This is backwards. But that's a whole other thing. So... Where was I going with all of that? I totally <laughs> forgot that. You see how much I'm bothered with, with that. So uh, we were talking about the whole faithful living. I don't even know where I was going with that. I'm so messed up with it. Yeah, so we'll go on. It may come to me. But we should, we should live out our life faithfully to serve the living and the, and the one true God that every single thing in our life is lived out for him. Oh, true God, I remembered. One thing that I get concerned about with a new generation that's everything is online, truth comes online, everything. I, I see it in parenting, I see it in living their life. It's like shaming from everywhere around the world that if you, you know, there was a day where it was good to not have access to everything and everybody. You didn't have 50 million moms telling you what to do. You don't have 60 grandfathers or fathers telling you how you should live your life. You don't need that many, to be really honest with you. And now parents and people are being shamed into stuff. It's just stupid. It's like, stop. It's okay if you didn't give your kid a bath today. It's not the end of the world. It's all right if you don't have this perfect, you know, whatever. It's okay. You're not a bad parent if you, shh, don't tell anybody about it. I let my kids walk around in the yard without shoes. It's okay. It really is. Our truths should come from God. We serve Him. Our whole life is oriented around Him. So this should change everything in our life. And the last thing, I'm going to be done with it, is it should change our perspective and how we live. Notice the very last verse in this. He's very careful. He says, and look, and wait. You guys are waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a whole sermon just in that one verse. I won't take your time on it, but look, here's the deal. If these things are true, 
We should be living our life out, not just confidence in our past, which is Paul's telling them, but subtly he's saying, turn your attention to the future. Boys and girls, look this way, he says, talking to me too. He says, you're waiting for Jesus to come. You're waiting. Now, in our culture, waiting is not good. I was driving close to rush hours, like 4.30. I was coming from downtown Albany, trying to go west of my house. And uh, I was getting on, uh, I was just coming off of Western on the Ormond, you know, and there's a little on-ramp there, and you can get on the throughway and head east. And I mean, the cars were sitting still back around the Cloverleaf. And it was just before, I'm like, forget this. I started going 180 degrees opposite. I'm not going to sit and wait for that. I went back around Everett Road. And I'm like, I'd rather spend time driving in the same amount of time. I was just sitting there and going crazy. So I, I spun around. When the Bible says that we're waiting for Jesus, we don't like to wait. Waiting is a negative thing. In this case, it's a positive thing. What he is saying, this is the waiting for Christmas to come. This is a kid waiting for dad to come home because they're going to go camping. This is, this is waiting and can't wait for the birthday party to come. This is a, oh, I can't wait. Jesus is coming back. This is going to be awesome. I don't mean living like crazy weird people, but I mean we live every day. He's like, guys, there's an expectation in our soul that we're not lost in the middle of the mundane and craziness and headaches and heartaches and problems and challenges while we're fixing plumbing and making our money. All the while, there's a perspective that we have that we're anticipating there's something awesome coming. You know how that is when you've kind of saved up and you're waiting for a vacation or whatever you've got going on. And, you know, you've kind of waiting for this special day. And even though it's a hard day at work, doesn't it change your perspective? You're like, oh, I can't wait, you know. That's what he's telling us. He says, guys, there's an expectation of waiting for the Lord Jesus, knowing that he saves us from the wrath saves us from the punishment of sin. That, frankly, folks, the world has not seen the wrath of God on sin. It is coming, and God delivers His children out of that. It's part of the reason why we should be committed to sharing and living the gospel, to help people to, to be delivered and to, to be rescued out of that mess. See, Paul is telling us, guys, he says, I know that you are saved, that you are born again. Let's look at the body of evidence. Look, the Holy Spirit came. You received that word. You turned from idols. It was a real conversion in your soul. Look how your life has changed. You live like Jesus now. You're an example. You're living in brotherhood and community. The gospel's going forward. The Holy Spirit and joy is in your life. You serve. Everything in your life is to, to honor and lift before the Lord God of heaven. And you're living in such a way that there's an expectation about Jesus coming back for you. He says, those things are real. Those are obvious. Those are things you and I should aspire to. Those things should be a warning. If the majority of that list is not in our life, we should be sitting back and saying, uh-oh, that's not me. And we should ask God the question, God, why is that not me? And there's only one of two general answers. One is either you really don't know the Lord Jesus and you really need to get on your knees before the God of heaven and yield and surrender all to Him. Or secondly, your life is not lived out in that confidence and that focus, and you've forgotten. If I were to go on a, a trip tomorrow for the next month and go out of town to work, and let's say I had to call home and 
honey, I'm sorry, I've got to spend two more months' time. But then over those three months' time that I'm gone, I never call my wife, never text her, never email her, never look on Facebook to see what she's up to, even though she doesn't post a lot, neither do I. But after a while, I would know that I was married to her, but I wouldn't feel like I was married to her very much. Right? Sometimes you and I know the Lord Jesus, but we're not checking in, we're not living in relationship with Him, we're not living as we should. And when we begin doing that, those things on that, that vertical list that I showed you begin falling away. So this morning, I don't know what you needed. This is a target-rich message and passage that God gave us. Some of you need to take stock. Have you really received Jesus or not? The fact that you were brought up in church is irrelevant. Which church you brought up in is not on that list. What matters on that list is have you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Have you truly surrendered your life, turned from all the sin and idols, and really yielded it to Him? And that process of time, invisible to you, and you have no control over it, but the Holy Spirit quickens and makes that alive. And if you really haven't done that this morning, I urge you before you do leave to do that. That's what this next song is for. To you in the quietness of your heart, say, God, I want to do that. Some of you will feel the need to periodically in your life keep asking Jesus to save you. Folks, you only need to do this one time. I only said I do to my wife once. It's okay if you renew your vows. I'm not saying that's bad. But once you really trust Jesus, you're, that's it. There's a, that's, that, that little ugly orange block, that happens one time. One time. If you feel the need to continue, one of two things is going on. You either really didn't surrender to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is nagging at you, telling you you really need to, and not just in little pieces, but to really give up and give in. Or secondly, you don't have the confidence that God has really saved you. And so this morning, if you are not having that confidence, I want you to walk away with it. Paul's trying to lay this out. He's trying to say, guys, look at this. Look at this. There's evidence here. Look at what God has done in your life. Be confident in that. Maybe neither of those is a concern of yours. Maybe it's just having a fresh reminder of how much the God of heaven loves you. If you do worship and glorify Him, maybe God kicked you in the pants about some other things, convicting you, challenging you, I don't know. But wherever you are this morning, respond is what God has spoken into your heart. That's what this next song or two is for, is for you and I to, in our heart to worship Him, to respond to Him. So our team is going to come up. I'm going to pray. And let's just individually as a church commit to respond and do business with God. Pray with me, would you? Father, I thank you for the truths of this passage. Thank you, Lord, for taking the time to spell out for us just how we know you and how we can look at our life objectively and to see what you've done. Lord, I pray that whatever needs to happen in each person's life, I've laid this out as best and as clearly as I know how, but Lord, I can do nothing apart from your Holy Spirit empowering and convicting. And I pray that you would do that into each and every one of our hearts, including mine. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.